0: Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges, and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory, and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Hi there, welcome back to Trading Straits. I'm Philip Reimer, I'm with Susan Rattala, and we're together to discuss Ship Sale 22, the new BIMCO contract for the sale and purchase of ships.
1: Hi, everyone. So let's kick off with this. Philip, why has BIMCO decided to release their own form of MOA now?
0: There are a few reasons here. First, the Norwegian Form 2012, popular form and well-used, is now 10 years old, I think BIMCO have thought now is the time for an improvement and a replacement document. What's quite interesting is that having had a chat with some of our litigation colleagues, there have been very few disputes around the wording of Norwegian Sailform 2012. So it's a tough act for the BIMCO ship sale to follow. Also, there have been quite a few sort of industry developments which have meant that various amendments and additional clauses have been made to NSF 2012 and those have largely been dealt with by way of fairly standard additional clauses added to NSF 2012 and various amendments made to its printed terms. The last point I'd mention is that in recent years, BIMCO has been very active uh, producing new standard forms and new updates to standard forms, partly to be compatible with its documentation software, um, SmartCon, which they're encouraging people to use more and more.
1: Absolutely. And I guess just to add to that, you know, a lot of people see the Norwegian sale form as being a BIMCO form because you go into the BIMCO software to prepare it. But obviously, it wasn't actually originally developed by PIMCO. So, a sale contract, I suppose, is something they didn't have in the BIMCO repertoire until now. So, it makes sense that they'd want to add that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are some, in line with that, there are some interesting structural changes to the, to the document from the NSF 2012. I would say the ship sells a lot longer than the NSF 2012, over 2,000 words longer that's 7,433 versus 5,208 to be precise. What readers will notice as well is that a lot of the terms and conditions of ship sale are pretty much the same as NSF 2012, they're just in a different order and that's part of the approach of ship sale. It's drafted to follow the chronology of a standard ship sale and purchase. So clauses have been collected in the same place to try and follow that logical order. Now, structurally, ship sale follows other BIMCO forms, just like shipman, for example. So it has the box approach as part one, and then as part two, it has the standard terms and conditions. So quite important here to make sure that the boxes are fully and accurately completed. The other uh, structural differences to ship sale are the fact that the delivery documents are now set out in Annex A. So if the delivery documents are to be agreed later, which is often the arrangement between the parties, where the parties agree to set those out in a later agreed addendum, there will need to be front-up changes made to the terms of the MOA, the ship sale, to reflect that. The other annex to ship sale, Annex B, is the expedited items which are now to be set out in that annex. And I think the important point to make there, aside from making sure that all the expedited items are fully listed, is that there's no sort of general wording in the MOA to set out what classes of items are excluded, so absolutely everything that needs to be excluded needs to be included in that annex. So I was going to say, Susan, ahead of looking at some of the new clauses that have been included, what do you see as the significant amendments to the wordings of NSF 2012? And in fact, so just ahead of that, I was just going to ask you about subjects because I had noted that in ship sale, uh um, of subjects are something people think about at the beginning of a transaction. Is that they've actually included a, a clause on subjects?
1: That is interesting because that was actually one of the things that I sort of really stuck out to me is that subjects are now included as a separate clause. Now, recaps almost always have subjects but by the time you come to actually sign the moa the subjects will have been lifted you do sometimes see subjects in a in a you know final signed moa but generally speaking parties tend to to resist that but even when you do have subjects in an moa they're not always very clearly drafted it isn't obvious what happens if the subjects aren't lifted you know what what impact does that have legally on the contract here bimco has drawn a line under that and they've said we will have a separate subjects clause and listing out all the subjects. And it states that the MOA doesn't become effective until the subjects have been lifted. And if they're not lifted within an agreed long stop date, then the MOA is void. Now, I think that's that's helpful because it sets out exactly what the consequences are. But I can sort of see a couple of pitfalls there, namely because you could still end up with some uncertainty about exactly when a subject has or hasn't been lifted if the actual subjects themselves haven't been drafted properly. And you know the way that the BIMCO form has dealt with this is it has a box at the front that says list the subjects and then the subject clause refers to that box. So if you don't list you know, clear, concise subjects in that box, you could still end up with, with some disputes. I think the other thing that might end up being quite interesting is that if you have a recap already and you don't have you know the same subject in your recap as you will in your final m o a, you could end up in a sort of slightly odd argument where one party is saying, oh, the MOA is void because the subjects haven't been lifted, and the other party is saying, well, that's irrelevant because we already had a binding recap and therefore we had a p- binding agreement. So, you know, obviously these kinds of things will have to be looked at on a case-by-case basis, but I think that, that's something that's, that's quite different about the way the NSF works.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I absolutely agree, because it's quite unusual to see subjects included in an MOA. Normally the MOA is like almost the, the last subject.
1: Definitely. And most of the time, you know, we we see clients saying, well, you know, we don't want to sign until, you know, we've actually lifted all the subjects. So it's I suppose it remains to be seen whether people will actually use that. It might be that there are some cases the subject clause will just get struck out altogether. But you know, we'll see how the market deals with that. And I suppose in terms of other you sort of mentioned other kind of big differences in what we've seen from the NSF. The underwater inspection clause has been pretty much overhauled from what was in the NSF and sort of divided into different sections. I think the one of the key points that BIMCO themselves have highlighted and that I think we've all noted is that no longer can the buyers sort of indefinitely delay the underwater inspection to buy time. There is now a two-day cutoff during which the buyers have to either start or complete the underwater inspection. And if they don't, the cancelling date is extended. Now, there's possibly a bit of a question mark here about exactly how that extension is calculated. Is that two days? Where does that two days start to count from? And it's also not entirely clear then exactly when the sellers would be entitled to tender NOR. Now, from NSF, you know, you'll remember that it says that the NOR can't be tendered until the underwater inspection is completed. And the ship sale has a similar concept, but it doesn't then go on to say that if the buyers are sort of deemed to have waived their uh, right to underwater inspection by not starting and completing it within that two-day period, that you can then immediately, as sellers, tender the NOR. Perhaps a little bit of an academic point, but I think that's something that I can see being a subject of discussion when negotiating the form.
0: Do you think that will require a change to the MOA?
1: I suspect it would in the sense that it's probably implied that if you've waived your right to underwater inspection, then the sellers can tender the NOR. But if I was the sellers, I'd certainly want to make that absolutely crystal clear and not you know, leave something in there that might be you know, otherwise interpreted. I suppose there's two other clauses that I think are worth mentioning here one is that obviously in a lot of cases under moas there are guarantors and historically what has happened has not always been well i suppose not the way lawyers would like to do it you have an moa and a guarantor just kind of comes in and countersigns it and there isn't necessarily any real kind of guarantee language or uh, reference to to the guarantor whereas other times you know you might have a separate guarantee outside of the MOA. Here, BIMCO have said, look, let's just deal with this issue, not unreasonably, by saying we're going to have a provision that you can list the guarantors in the MOA and have them sign up to the MOA as guarantors. So, I mean, it's really formalising the sort of market approach that's being taken anyway, by just having the guarantors countersigning MOAs. Obviously, from a lawyer's seat, I would still be recommending that Parties have either a separate guarantee or at least a guarantee clause in the MOA that sort of covers your standard English law guarantee concepts, you know, if you're the beneficiary of that guarantee. But I don't think what they've done here is, you know, really anything particularly outrageous because it reflects what the market is doing with guarantees anyway.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the, the NSF approach is very shorthand approached and starting with that sort of approach of having the buyers being X terms being a holding or management company or guaranteed nominee, and and that being enough to constitute a guarantee. So I I think the market's always been quite happy with that approach. But I think the launch of ship sale has generated a bit of discussion about, is that necessarily best practice, which it may not be, and thinking about, uh, in certain circumstances, the need for separate guarantees or, as you say, fuller guarantee language.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that's come out is some people have been saying, oh, well, often you have a separate guarantee. But I don't think that's, from my experience, necessarily the case. A lot of times you don't, as you say, you just have a guarantor countersigning the MOA without having anything anything formal in place, really. So yeah, I don't think that that's going to really change much about what happens. And I suppose the final uh, final clause that's worth just mentioning is the uh, deposit clause. It's the deposit clause is something that very often gets amended in the NSF because it doesn't really contemplate a deposit being held in an escrow account with a law firm or a broker or a third party escrow agent, which is something that happens you know, 90% of the time. Parties don't really use joint accounts anymore. They're really difficult to open and it's much easier to, to find an escrow agent. And the ship sale deposit clause now is is a lot clearer on this. and They have Introduced the concept of a separate deposit agreement, which is essentially the escrow agreement, and they've also introduced a grace period for delayed payment of the deposit in case of a sort of technical payment issues, um, which unfortunately are pretty common. It you know happens more often than you might like to think that funds get held of held up, you know, because of some sort of technical error or a sanctions check. What is interesting about that is that this grace period only applies to the deposit. It doesn't apply to any other amounts payable under the MOA, such as, you know, the balance or the all the extras. The logic that BIMCO used here was to say that at the time of the deposit you're just, you know, sending money to close down the deal, but at that time the asset isn't changing hands, whereas at closing, you know, you're you're actually moving the asset from one party to the other. So getting the funds in place at a given time is pretty key. I mean, normally, these days, even the balance price is pre positioned anyway. So there's a point to which you can mitigate these issues by just making sure that the funds are sent, you know, ahead of the closing with sufficient time. I think that's quite an interesting, interesting one, and quite sort of astute of them to to spot that this does happen more often than, uh, than not, that funds get held up somewhere and people make some sort of technical error or admin error and the deposit is delayed.
0: Yes, yeah, I might feel that the, the anti-technicality provision for the payment of the deposit is somewhat buyer-friendly. And another point, as I noted, was that the MI doesn't provide for pre-positioning of the balance, which is pretty common these days.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I and I think they it's it's one of those things that often either doesn't get put in the MOA at all or if it does, you know, it gets kind of negotiated quite heavily exactly what happens for you closing. I think recently I've seen it more that the MO, MOAs have been prescriptive about how the balance is paid than say I don't know 5 6 years ago. But even so, I think that BIMCO has sort of taken the view that it happens differently every time and the parties can then make a decision if they want to be prescriptive, they can put in their own their own language or just not put anything in at all and just have a separate kind of closing agenda that sets out the procedure. But yes, you're right, it's, it's interesting that they haven't considered having any language, even though that is really something that happens 99% of the time.
0: Be it that I agree what I think you're saying is it's not always good practice to try and negotiate the closing mechanics at the same time as the MOA.
1: Yeah absolutely and I think that can really delay things if you're going to have a outgoing mortgagee and incoming financier and lots of parties involved it can cause delays and additional sort of complexity by if you're trying to sign the MOA and at the same time get everybody on board with with the closing mechanics it can get uh, it can get quite messy. Now, as I said, we've talked about the kind of key operative clauses, but there have been quite a few more boilerplate-type clauses added to reflect kind of recent market practice. So what would you say are some of the most welcome additions in that context?
0: Briefly, I would say these are the sanctions clause. So typically, the sellers and buyers will include a sanctions clause, And now the ship sale includes a standard form, which is a BIMCO sanctions clause, which I think will be acceptable to both parties. It also includes an anti-corruption clause, but noteworthy is it doesn't include anti-money laundering language. Now, I think both with the sanctions clauses and anti-corruption clauses, either of or both the sellers and buyers may have their own internal compliance requirements and language, so that will impact on the terms that are included or the revisions or additional clauses that are made to ship sale in this regard. Ship sale also now includes a confidentiality clause, which is a very standard inclusion, and in line with market practice it provides the breach of that clause doesn't entitle either party to terminate the contract just a right in damages also included is a bimco electronic signatures clause the law and arbitration provisions are replaced by bimco standard clauses and also there's provision for a make closing also of note, I think, is that in relation to payment, there's a, a, a no withholdings and gross up provision in the payments clause.
1: Yeah, I think that's it's interesting that the boilerplate clauses that have been included, I think almost most of the time are in there. You know, as you said, confidentiality is is almost always included, but not always in a very helpful form. I think something that you very often see is a clause that just says, the parties will keep this contract confidential and not disclose it to anyone, which isn't commercially very viable, whereas the BIMCO clause does kind of provide for the usual exclusions and exceptions from that. So they've kind of preempted some of the overly simplistic clauses that you sometimes see in the market. But we've talked quite a bit about what is in there but what about what isn't in there? I think there are a few things that there have been a lot of feedback from various stakeholders in the industry suggesting kind of new clauses that should be included, but obviously not all of them could be. What do you think are some of the clauses that are maybe a bit surprising that they're not in there?
0: I'll start with those which are more marginal. Firstly, COVID-19 and force majeure. So over the last couple of years, we've seen a wide range of COVID-19 clauses included in MOAs to deal with what happens if there's a COVID-19 outbreak which affects crew joining the ship, exiting the ship, etc. Otherwise, the operations of the ship in relation to the sale and purchase. I think probably quite rightly, MCO decided not to include such a clause because I think that's quite specific to recent circumstances. And also that clause tends to get negotiated with regard to the particular circumstances of each sale and purchase. There has been a call for a more general force majeure clause. My view is that's not a very sort of English law type approach to have a general force majeure clause. I think the drafting committee approach is that force majeure is best dealt with by dealing with specific instances of where things happen, for example, total loss. I've already mentioned the lack of anti-money laundering provisions, but I think each party will have its own compliance requirements and will include those in the MOA. There's also been a lot of debate recently about responsible and green recycling. So certain sellers will want to impose upon their buyers requirements in relation to the recycling of the vessel going forward, particularly relevant to older vessels. Now, I think the BIMCO drafting committee approach there is is that the position remains under discussion and uncertain. And they are, I understand, drafting a more general clause on this issue for BIMCO contracts. So I think this is one is like, watch this space. But I think, in the meantime, where sellers have particular requirements for their own compliance reasons, ESG reasons, then they will look to impose and negotiate those requirements with a buyer. But onto what I think are probably the two two main omissions. First one we've touched on already, and that's having a provision for the nomination of buyers, and it's pretty standard that the MOA is entered into by X or guaranteed nominee and there are no mechanics or provisions as to how that might be dealt with in the contract.
1: It's interesting that they have decided to take that approach when the guarantor signature and provision for a guarantor has been expressly included, which is most often relevant where you have a nominee. So it's almost assuming that by the time you come to sign the MOA, that nominee company already exists, which often isn't the case.
0: Absolutely, the, the final omission I wanted to mention is that there isn't any provision in ship sale for the possibility of a sale of the vessel subject to an existing charter, and with provisions, for example, relating to the novation of that charter to the buyers upon delivery of the vessel. In our experience, I think that's quite common and requires a number of adjustments and amendments to the terms of ship sale to cater for that possibility, both around delivery documents, the ownership and payment for bunkers, or otherwise the existence of the charter as a potential encumbrance upon delivery, for example, So in those instances, we will find ourselves advising the sellers and the buyers as to the required amendments to ship-sell. Susan, my sort of wrap-up question for you is, do you think that ship-sellers and buyers will use this form?
1: That's that's an interesting one. I suspect that it will take a little bit of time to get adopted just because people are very used to the NSF 2012 form when that form was released it was probably a year or two and we were still seeing a fair amount of NSF uh, 93 out in the market so you know it's possible that for a a time I suspect they will be there in in parallel the NSF is, is is a familiar form that people are used to there will be some people that You'll need to pry them out of they're called dead hands, but you know it's it's definitely a something that I can see being adopted, especially by kind of new entrants to the market who are you know not so married to the Norwegian sale form. What do you think?
0: I agree. I think it will be driven by new entrants. It'll be driven by stakeholders in relation to BIMco follow, using the BIMco system, but I think it will take little while to gain traction. And certainly what I'm seeing in the market at the moment is continued use of NSF twenty twelve. And that's partly because I think parties don't have time to spend in familiarising themselves as to what they might want to change to ship sale. And particularly where deals have to be struck very quickly, it's a disadvantage I think to be spending too much time thinking about a new form.
1: Yeah, I think that makes makes a lot of
0: sense. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for listening and thank you for your time. And any questions, please reach out to us.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McCartley. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com.
1: Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.